Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and today I'm very pleased to say that we have Jose Angel Hernandez on the show, and he's written a wonderful book called Mexican-American Colonization During the 19th Century, A History of the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands. As I told Jose in the pre-interview, I did not know, and this is a major focus of the book, that the Mexican government has long had a repatriation uh, program, which attempts to uh, lure uh, Mexicans who are in the United States or Mexican-Americans or Chicanos, I don't know what to call them. He'll tell me uh, back to, to Mexico. And, and as I also said in the pre-interview, this makes perfect sense. I'm a Russianist myself, and the Russians also have a program to bring Russians abroad, as they call them, back to Russia. So, again, America is a little bit unique. I, I don't know if it's a little bit unique. It's unique in this way as we don't attract Americans back. I don't, I don't know why that is. We'll talk about that, too. Um, so, anyway, Jose, thanks very much for being on the show. Hey, thank you very much, Marshall, for the invitation. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, I'm currently um, an associate professor at UMass in the Department of History, but this year I'm a visiting associate professor at the University of Houston with the uh, Center for Mexican-American Studies. I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, I was born in Moncola, Coahuila, but... My parents came to the U.S. when I was about 17 months old, um, and so grew up in San Antonio, was in the U.S. Navy immediately afterwards as a, as a jet mechanic and did a quick tour on the USS Warsaw and um, went to school, um, got a couple of degrees, wrote a dissertation that was very much related <laughs> to the book, and as a condition of employment, I had to publish the book, so there you have it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've never heard one like that. That's the best one I've ever heard. I got a couple of degrees, and as a condition of employment, I had to write this book. <laughs> Isn't it true? I'd like to talk to you about being a jet mechanic because I kind of have an aviation nut, but because um, that's that's pretty cool being an aviation mechanic. Yeah, um, so, I don't think aviation mechanics ever want for work, do they? I mean, What's that? Jet, jet mechanics—they don't want for work, do they? I mean, isn't it pretty easy to get a job as a jet mechanic? Oh man, it was. It was, um, you know, it, it is if you're sort of in the machine shop uh-huh. and you're working with the jets themselves. But, yeah. you know, in the Navy, you sort of have to work your way up in the system. And so I was only in for four years. So okay. about three of those years I spent as a glorified grease monkey more okay. than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gives you a lot more experience than most of us in academia. Let's say that. Um, so tell us, tell us, I was going to say, tell us why you left the Navy, but don't tell us that. Um, tell us, tell us why you wrote, uh, Mexican American colonization during the 19th century. Um, you know, it's actually not that, um, in this sense, it's very typical Marshall of like the graduate experience, I think, which is that, you know, you come into graduate school with these ideas about writing, you know, on X topics and then you discover, uh, for whatever reasons that, you know, there's either not an archive for it or there's these obstacles. But long story short, when I was at the University of Houston, I went to go study there with a gentleman named John Hart, who 
Uh, it basically, even today, the, probably the nation's expert on Mexican anarchism. He's written three books on it. And um, after kind of proposing a few topics, you know, and I guess he saw my frustration, he was, he was working on a book called um, uh, Revolutionary Mexico, The Americans in Mexico Since the Civil War. It's a fascinating book. But he asked me on one of our office meetings if, if I was interested in, uh, in uh, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans in Mexico, and I was immediately sort of drawn to the, like, what? Like, you know, exactly this question about, like, narrative in the, um, in, in, in the U.S., of course. It's usually about Mexican migration north right. to the United States. I mean, and that's, that's the entire body of sociology and, and most of the historical studies. So when John mentioned these colonization programs, of, uh, and he, he handed me, you know, Marshall, I mean, I still have those notes. He handed me, like, you know, two or three scribbled notes that he had taken from the archive in the Mexican Senate. And from there, you know, I went and looked at the historiography and wrote an MA thesis and then went to Chicago and, you know, uh, lived in Mexico for a couple of years and, um, and eventually uh, saw that it was a window into a much, much broader, broader process that I think the book just, you know, in an essence, just outlined, I think, this longer and larger historical process, which um, neither uh, U.S. historians nor Mexicanists, and ironically or paradoxically perhaps, um, people that studied like Mexican-American or Chicano history, right, this looking at this transnational process of people actually returning to a country of origin or being enticed to return and to resettle. So that's how I kind of, you know, bumped into the topic. And then from there, you know, I saw that there was a, it was just the tip of the iceberg, what John was handing me. Mm-hmm. Well, I got two things to say. One is he sounds like a great advisor. He's <laughs> <laughs> a sweet man. <laughs> yeah, really sounds like a great advisor. And two is, I mean, it's 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 um it's a it's a it's a testimony to your uh your your um your intelligence that you followed up on it because uh, it it is I have to say the notion of Mexican Americans returning to Mexico is from the American perspective a very odd one because all we hear about is the other way around. Indeed, and. I mean, you hear it about, you hear, you hear it, like you said, from the only the other way. And not only that, I mean, I mean, given the contemporary, not only the contemporary, when I think, you know, as historians, you know this, Marshall, I mean, when I say contemporary, I mean, not only now, but in the last couple of generations, the, the language about, um, about immigrants, especially those coming from, from Latin America um, and from Asia, but especially those coming from what is, what, what, what used to be referred to as Mesoamerica, you know, including Central America, Honduras, et cetera, the discourse and the language about this immigration has been quite mixed to be, to yeah. be um, fair. And so on this side of the, of the border, when you hear about immigration, you have the, the defenders about immigrants, but the rhetoric, the discourse, the anti-immigrant discourse, especially after 9-11, which got really, really ratcheted up, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's very different in that sense. When you look at it from the other way around, yeah. the way in which, for instance, um, Latin Americans or even the Mexican state uh, in the case of the 19th century is sort of glorifying and even in their own way racializing these people that are going to the U.S. and they're trying to find ways in which to entice them to have them return to Mexico. But at the same time, I think it's important to point out here that you know, although the project appears at first blush to a lot of folks that have sort of, you know, written a few journal pieces on it here and there, 
um, although it appears at first blush to be this sort of um, awakening of a, of a kind of a nationalist uh, consciousness in the 19th century, which, you know, quite frankly, you know this as well as I do, it's comparable to the kinds of ideas that were emerging in Europe at the mm-hmm. same time in the 19th century, very nationalist ideas, etc. And, you know, so at first it appears as something that is a kind of a nationalist impulse, uh, when in fact, what, if you look closely at how they're trying to colonize or trying to entice these people to return, is they're trying to strategically target areas along the northern frontiers of the Republic in order to have these repatriates assist the Mexican state in trying to pacify, quell, and eventually settle those areas mm-hmm. and away from the grip of independent indigenous groups that right. have resisted, have resisted. Um, you know, the U.S. and Mexico for centuries, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, at first it appears as something that's sort of this, you know, wow, they're, they're doing something to help these people out. But in fact, it's, a, it's the usual thing that most states do, which is just real politic. You know, it's, yeah. we're going to give it the, uh, uh, the patina of nationalism, but, what, but behind it is really very strategic military policy intended to help them pacify these yeah. various indigenous groups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really the way imperialism works because I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the Russian case again. Uh, yeah. I guess I put it differently. It's the way successful imperialism works because in the Russian case in the 18th century, the Russians would send uh, large populations to the frontier. This was the Caucasus and, and Central Asia uh, precisely so that they could control the area and basically wrest control of it from indigenous peoples. And then after yeah. the destruction of the Soviet Union – um, the, the Russian border withdrew from those areas, and now the Russians are trying to get all those people back that they implanted way out there in Central Asia. So the parallel is kind of interesting in that way. Um, so let's actually set let's start the narrative a little bit and set the set the scene. Um, sure. The, how how did uh, is it, is it, I'm going to use this word Mexicans, and I don't know exactly if it's the right term for the 19th century, but I'll use it and you can correct me. How did Mexicans get into this area, this what, what we think of as the northern borderland, the area that was taken from them after the Mexican-American War, which ended in 1848? How did they get up there? Um, that's actually a good place to start. I mean, the, the what's really – I was talking to some students of mine the other day about you know something related to this, Marshall, but – it's interesting if you look at the longer if you look at the longer history, and this is not in the book, but I'll, you know to contextualize the question. If you look at the lo- the broader history of the Americas, like you know the the migration of the Mayans, the migration of the the, the seven tribes, what are today called the Aztecs, in those in their migration narratives, according to Mexican historians like Florescano, the one thing that these narratives uh, from Mesoamerica had in common that experts have have kind of a put together is that the migration narrative is what they had in common because, you know, these are the people that are sort of migrating southward into what is today the mm-hmm. south of Mexico and into Mesoamerica. That migration, I was thinking about it the other day, you know, it doesn't really go back into reverse northward until the Spaniards arrive in 1519 and they eventually mm-hmm. uh, overthrow the Aztecs in 1521 with the assistance, of course, of, you know, a quarter million indigenous allies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these indigenous allies along with um, a number of the Spanish uh, conquistadores, begin to migrate northward. And a lot of these towns, like Monterrey, uh, especially in the the modern state of Nuevo León, are founded and populated by the allies of these um, uh, Spanish uh, so-called colonizers to the north. And so the, the, the Spanish government between 
the 16th and uh, late 19th century, excuse me, late uh, 1810s, around there, right before they're overthrown and thrown out of the country, they begin to set up these towns that go as far north as, um, you know, modern-day uh, San Diego, San Francisco, um, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, etc., San Antonio, Texas. And that migration northward is, is eventually, or it's initially, it started by the Spanish government after their uh, after independence in 1821, and during the Mexican period in that area from 1820s to the 18 until the Mexican-American War, they begin to ratchet up this process of trying to entice and invite colonists from the Central Valley of Mexico to populate various uh, areas of what, what is today, you know. Texas, New Mexico, mm-hmm. Arizona, and California. By the time the um, the uh, so that was the question you asked was how they got up there right initially. So yeah, yeah that, that's it. that's exactly how they begin to sort of uh, move northward is by you know uh, various governments setting up these colonization programs to entice people to move northward. But what happens, of course, in the Texas case is that you know because that kind of migration northward, trying to entice colonists from the Central Valley and various parts in the Republic to, to go up north and trying to fight, you know, independent indigenous groups is not always the most inviting scenario. So no. what they begin to do is they, they begin to do what most countries in the Americas uh, begin to do, which is what the U.S. is doing, what Argentina is doing, which is to liberalize their, um, their immigration policies. And so they begin to invite, uh, especially uh, North Americans and Europeans, to settle and colonize what is today the state of Texas. And in that sense, those particular policies are, in fact, too successful, right? Because eventually what ends up happening, as the narrative goes, is that, you know, North Americans begin to overwhelm and overpopulate the Texas uh, uh, territory to such an extent that they, um, they, uh, they, um, they demographically overwhelm the local population and so when Mexico tries to stop that immigration in the 1830s with the 1830 uh, law, which outlaws the entrance of, uh, of slaves, um, you know, the Texas colonists rebel. Um, you have a so-called independence movement. The U.S. annexes the territory in the 1840s, 44, 45, and you have a war that sets off a war between the U.S. and Mexico mm-hmm. over those territories. Mm-hmm. So that's, 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 the, that's a way of looking at that narrative through the question of or through the lens of colonization and immigration, right? Because all of this is taking place during a period of intense global mass immigration. Yeah. And, we, and we know right now that there's basically you know, two huge periods of this global mass immigration, the first one being between the 1830s, 1840s, up until about the end of the Great Depression. And so all of these things that I'm talking about, these movements, these huge movements of people, the attempt to try and entice and to settle these immigrants in strategic locations is happening at a moment in history which is experiencing some of the largest um, movements globally of people uh, mm-hmm. throughout the entire uh, hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because the Mexicans were pushing north and then, of course, the Americans are pushing West and manifest destiny meets manifest destiny. And so in an attempt to basically control, rightfully control their own borders, the Mexicans lose this huge chunk of territory. <laughs> I mean, isn't yeah, that I what mean, happened? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the, the so-called uh, North Americans are pushing westward, right, Marshall, like you're saying. And these folks are, are trying to push their people 
uh, northward into an area that has basically been inherited to them, right, by the Spanish Empire, which has, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, had drawn up these ridiculous maps that they could never, ever populate them, you know? <laughs> and so, and in between those is you have interest, I mean, not interestingly, but obviously, you have in between those two imperial powers pushing is you have other uh, uh, indigenous imperial powers. I mean, you have a Comanche empire. I mean, mm-hmm. just to, to, to paraphrase a, a title of a recent work, you have large, incredibly large uh, groups of, uh, of Apache, of Kiowa, mm-hmm. of, um, of Pueblo. So, you know, while you have these two huge, you know, entities pushing, as you say, the others are also pushing back. And in the process, you know, you have these two countries uh, essentially signing an accord uh, in the 1840s over a territory that, in many in many cases, um, the both the Spanish government and the and the, and the and the later Mexican government would have difficulty in trying to populate. Mm-hmm. So the areas of what are today, for instance, you know, Texas, New Mexico, uh, California, uh, the populations in those areas after the Mexican-American War of 1840 uh, and 1848. Those populations constituted probably one percent of the total Mexican population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think as I as I said in the book as well, it's like the uh, the Mexican government would would realize only too well what the Spaniards had known before them, and what even the Aztecs had known before them that it was going to be it would be very difficult to try and settle the area that today we know as the border, because that area is settled, controlled, populated by a series of, uh, of uh, independent uh, indigenous groups that have, again, that had that have been independent of both the U.S. and Mexico for many centuries. Mm-hmm. Under that, let me ask a question out of ignorance again. What, what did, what was the, how did the Mexican government um, categorize indigenous peoples in the in the nineteen in the 19th century, and I mean, I think just by an analogy, of course, in the United States, they become nations, and they have they have certain. I mean, this right. happens later, but this is the way we treated them. We treat them as as nations, and, and they have various rights of sovereignty and, and some other things. How do the Mexicans deal with this question? You know, um, there has been quite there's been some work on that, and um, you know, David Weber's book uh, it's called um, it's called. Um, uh, Indios Barbaros, or it's called like Spaniards and, and, and her savages in the age of enlightenment, mm-hmm. <laughs> something to that effect. And he does, he does, he does pose that question. And what he says, you know, between the U.S. and Mexico, exactly the way you've asked it, Marshall. And what he says is that, you know, by the time of the enlightenment, um, you know, uh, Mexico had come to a, a, an agreement and accord with these people. But as, how they treated them, I think, is very different uh, on paper or in theory than they do in practice. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you asked the question about the 19th century. After independence, um, what Mexico does, which is a very fascinating case and something that I think would be worth researching more for, for U.S. historians, is that Mexico um, uh, erases all ethnic and racial categories mm-hmm. from its census. So even today, you, can't, you cannot put down, you know, what we have in, in our country, which is, you know, black, white, right. uh, you know, Asian... Mexico removed all those distinctions um, by the 1820s. And so how they treated indigenous groups, I think, on the one hand, um, theoretically, at least on paper, all people were equal. In practice, however, and even with respect to the period that I'm looking at with the book, 
is that they, they, they did make a distinction, and but the distinction they made was between uh, what they refer to as uh, uh, Indios civilizados and Indios barbaros, civilized Indians and or, or uncivilized, mm-hmm. or barbarous, right? Bar, you know, mm-hmm. Barbaros. Yeah. And of course, the the ones that were you know so, so-called civilized were the ones that were going to fight on their side, right? <laughs> <laughs> against those that were uncivilized, yeah. against those which were uncivilized. Yeah. Which basically meant that they didn't want to, and I mean, and Mexican intellectuals and even priests pointed this out, you know, you call them barbarians simply because they don't want to live uh, under your own system right. of governance, right? right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but for them, that's how, that's the distinction that they drew. And I think the, what it basically is, is like, you know, those who wanted to become Mexican, because I was having a discussion with a friend of mine who does uh, Chinese history, and we were we were talking about exactly how it is that um, that everyone, for instance, in what is today the, the, the geographical space of Mexico is referred to as Mexican. But in fact, uh, Mexican comes from the the, the, the Nahuatl word, Mexica, which is the ethnic group of the Aztecs, a very small minority that was late in entering the Valley of Mexico, you know, in 1111 AD, according to the Roman mythology. But it is this group which is not the greatest, only the latest, right, in the Valley of Mexico, which encounters the Spaniards in 1519. And so these are the the so-called hegemons, right, of the Central Valley of Mexico. But after independence, this entire geographical space that we know as Mexico becomes, in effect, Mexican, right, when in fact you have thousands of indigenous groups like, you know, Kickapoo, Yaqui, Tarahumara, etc., and all of them uh, effectively... To go back to your question, after the 19th century, how they treated, they become collapsed into this one ethnic category called Mexican, yeah. right? And yeah. that's, uh, you know, so I think in that sense, if one was to uh, to contrast that with the U.S., um, yeah, I think it's um, it's quite different that Mexico adopts an indigenous identity or, you know, or, uh, or a mestizo identity, if you will, whereas the U.S. Uh, does not. Yeah. Well, this is why I said earlier I was a little bit uncomfortable saying Mexicans in the 19th century because in, mm. in America, when you say Americans That's the working 19th, category, right, Marshall? That's yeah, it is. Category, yeah. So. <laughs> but in the United States, if you say Americans in the 19th century, you mean uh, usually uh, white people and their slaves, and then there are the Indians right. or Native Americans, and they're not Americans. They're something else. And I just wondered if there was a similar distinction. Uh, you know, I'd get yelled at if I called everybody an American in the 19th century, and probably for good reason. Uh, but in Mexico, I guess everybody was Mexican by the fiat of the Mexican government. Right, after 1820s, right? I mean, effectively, they remove all caste categories because, you know, they had been under a, a, uh, a very flimsy caste system. I mean, at least according to the most recent research that, that we have is that the, the caste system, which was sort of seen as this, this uh, very rigid system, was in fact quite flimsy. It was, it was basically a reflection of the Spaniards trying to control something which they had no control over. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so tell us, tell us how the Mexican government after the Mexican-American War, which as I say ends in uh, in 1848, how do they try to entice these uh, Mexican Americans, let's call them that, back to yes. Mexico? By doubling their lands, yeah, that will work. <laughs> by, by doubling their lands, you know, no, no military service, uh, you know, no taxes for ten years. All of these incredibly enticing, um, you know, offers, which again, in in on on paper, in theory, in legislation, 
at first blush could be read as like, wow, this is really, really an amazing thing they're doing. But, you know, um, what I did was I decided to, during the research, actually drive my, you know, 1989 Honda Accord and said, you know what, I'm going to repatriate myself and see, <laughs> see where these people went to. And so I did. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get some money. And, uh, you know, for about a year, I drove around and, you know, put about you know, over 200,000 miles in that poor car yeah. and repatriated myself. So... How do they entice them? By doubling their land, by giving them all kinds of tax concessions, goodies. Um, but in practice, and again, but in practice, you know, uh, it left much to be desired. And so what I do is, in order to not lose sight of like, well, let's not just pick on, you know, one area. What I did, Marshall, was I decided to look at cases in Texas, in New Mexico, and in California to kind of get a a kind of a comparative approach. Not only that, what the Mexican government does, interestingly enough, after the Mexican-American War, is that they assign what they refer to as a repatriate commission to each of the three regions. So interestingly enough, these three regions were divided that way during the Spanish period and during the Mexican period, but they were divided this way in a military context. Mm -hmm. So the people from Texas would therefore be repatriated to the neighboring state of Coahuila, the territory of New Mexico, the, ne the New Mexicans there would be repatriated to the neighboring state of Chihuahua, which had the largest, New Mexico had the largest um, Hispano, Mexican-American, what have you, uh, population. And then the people that were in uh, Alta California would then also be repatriated to the neighboring states of Baja California and Sonora. So what they do is they assign a, they assign a trusted individual for each of the three regions. What I discovered immediately was that most of the attention was given to the New Mexico case because that, of course, was the area that had the highest concentration and population of, uh, of ethnic Mexicans during the period. And in fact, New Mexico would continue to be majority uh, Hispano well into the 1930s, <laughs> you know, and they had quite uh, some legislative power there. Um, so that area was targeted and probably the most quote-unquote successful. For the case of Texas, they tried to find several people to, to, to head the repatriate commission, but they could not find anyone. So the various cases of repatriation that I found there were in many cases organic or done by the people themselves. So on the one hand, this is what I was saying, Marshall, is that you have a, you have a, 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 a law, a piece of legislation, but you don't have the infrastructure to kind of follow it through. So what you have is the law floating back across the border into Texas, people finding out about it. And in many cases, and in most cases, in fact, they organize on their own organically or collectively or mutually to form a repatriate uh, organization or a colonization scheme of some sort, and they themselves return on their own accord. The same thing happened in California, but to an even larger extent, because in California, as you probably know, immediately after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which ends the war between Mexico mm -hmm. and the U.S., the following year they discover gold in California. And, and, and California, in many ways, I think, becomes probably one of the first globalized cities in the world because you have there an immigration that comes from you know, Australia, Hawaii, Peru, Spain, Sonora, 
China, Ireland, Europe, I mean, from all over the world, almost overnight. Mm -hmm. And so what you begin to have there is, you know, early on, even before the, the, gold, uh, the, the gold rush of 1849, you already have evidence and instances of Sonoran, Sonoran miners that have had years of, of, uh, of working with gold and mining. They are, themselves are already migrating into the gold placers of California and coming back to Sonora with millions mm -hmm. and millions in gold. Mm -hmm. So what happens there is that you have a gold rush in 1849. There is so much competition from other people that by the 18, in the 1850s, they passed the foreign miners tax, which effectively places a $20 head tax on, especially Chinese miners, which are competing quite effectively with all the other immigrants that are there. And so what happens there is that a climate a very intense, uh, uh, racialized, competitive climate takes place, mostly between men. And you begin to have something very interesting in California, which I did not see in New Mexico, and only in a few cases in Texas, which is this very collective and organized, like what can, what, what can only be called a back-to-Mexico movement, these repatriation societies uh, uh, which begin to form by uh, elite members of that community. They advertise in Spanish-language newspapers about these repatriation societies. So when the Mexican government tries to find someone to appoint to that area, what they do in, in, in a couple of years is that they find that the, the people that are taking the initiative there, they, they make that person they appoint that person to head their own repatriate commission. So what they effectively do is that they assimilate a, an organic movement that is already taking place in order to have those people and those groups effectively uh, return to Mexico, but with very, very little government assistance. In fact, of the $15 million that are given, that is given to Mexico for the Mexican session, less than 1% of all of that money goes into providing uh, assistance, help, and infrastructure to the very people who are displaced by that session. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I see what you mean. So you've sort of anticipated my, my next question, and, and that is, and I don't know if you can answer it because, you know, people weren't taking polls and stuff, but the people yes. who were stranded, let's put it that way, they were, I, I want to say stranded, that's the wrong word. The people that found themselves on the American or United States side of the border, the Mexicans, yes. did they think of themselves as stranded? Did they think of themselves as Americans? Did they think of themselves as, as, as people that were, you know, that they had to come back to Mexico? Did they have any, any allegiance to Mexico? Did they think of themselves as Mexicans? Or did we ever find anything about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, I think like, like most people of that century, and of that period, um, they they call themselves whatever was most convenient in order to in order to forward their economic interests. So, if it was more beneficial to call themselves Americans, then they would probably call themselves that. And when it was beneficial to call themselves Mexicans, then they would they would they would write that way. So yeah, like in the case of of, um, of Texas, there was a case there in in a, um, of uh, some people from Nacogdoches, Texas. Uh, the Menchaca was his last name who were trying to petition the government to return to this place in Coahuila called El Remolino. And the Mexican government botches the case. They can't even find a person to, to, even, to even take the position of repatriate commissioner to the area. 
and so this person, um, you know, subsidizes his own um, his own repatriation colony. Um, has a couple of exchanges with the uh, with the, uh, the the state governor, but not even the state governor with this individual can get the government to even fund any of this program. So they use the rhetoric and the language of uh, of nationalism, but that language itself can change. You know, so it's I think uh, they're you know quite um, it's a quite a it's quite a, a, a malleable kind mm-hmm. of identity. And the reason I say that also, Marshall, because what you know, he, you know, effectively, the question is a, is a good segue into sort of the third and the final part of the book, which is that what I do in the book is, you know, when I sort of look at the book methodologically, I, I, I approach it globally, then nationally, and then regionally. So in the last part of the book, um, I, I examine one repatriate colony that made its way back to Mexico on three separate occasions. <laughs> and, and so in that, in that, in that example, right, of these, of these Mexicans from La Mesilla, New Mexico, which, you know, uh, after the, uh, after the Mexican American war decide to stay, you know, to remain on the, on the Mexican side, you know, for reasons of, again, land, property, et cetera, you know, mixed with the usual discourse of, uh, of nationalism, right, that we're Mexican citizens. In 1853, after the Gadsden Treaty, they, that entire area becomes um, uh, American. After about 20 years of living in the U.S. under a Mexican, um, under an American system of governance, there is a there is a, a uh, an election riot in New Mexico in the 1870s for the territorial delegate. Between Republicans and Democrats, the Republicans lose that election, and after a an election riot in in, in that in that uh, in that area, the losers, the so-called losers of that particular uh, uh, election, decide to move to La Fencion Chihuahua in 1872. So instead of accepting the defeat, a contingent about a hundred families move to La Sension Chihuahua in 1872. Once they get to uh, La Sension in Chihuahua uh, in 1872, they have all of these problems with trying to settle, trying to find water, trying to just basically meet the everyday uh, necessities of life. And on top of that, the biggest problem that they have is they have difficulty in trying to just get their lands surveyed you know, surveying in Mexico during this period was a very scientific thing as it is today. And so not everyone had their lands and their properties surveyed. What happens in the case of La Sension, as I talk about in the book, is that, you know, um, these repatriation programs become also, in many cases, basically just programs for petty corruption and opportunism. And so the Mexican government sends someone to La Fension as an overseer of the colony in order to survey the land and to oversee the colony. Long story short, this guy decides he's going to make a few dollars off these folks. He begins to swindle them out of uh, a number of acres of their holdings. And in 1892, because of these faulty surveys, land displacement, petty political corruption, etc., the people of La Sension have another election riot, only this time 20 years later in 1892. The leaders of that group 
will eventually return to La Mesilla and claim U.S. citizenship. So, so check this out. To go, back, to go back to your question, Marshall. To go back to your question, it's Marshall, good to have. Right? It's good to have options. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But exactly your question. Like, how did they? And that's why I really love the question. It's like, well, how, what do they call themselves? Because I think that is one of the things the book tries to do. Is that I think that. It tries to sort of like deconstruct and question, you know, this, this, this sort of nationalist narrative that always benefits mostly the nation, right? But mm-hmm. It's beneficial for the nation, for the government. Yeah. But, but in reality, you know, here you have these people. If we, if we just look at the case of La Mesilla and La Fención, <clears throat> these people after the Mexican-American War, you know, are calling themselves Mexican and American whenever it suits them, whenever it's beneficial, uh, I mean, these are people that were that were that voted right in an American against the, you know, the Democratic and Republican election in New yeah. Mexico in 1872. They didn't like the outcome, so they appeal to Mexican nationalism. And the letters are there. The letters are there where you know we want to return to the Mexican, you know, the Mexican nation to our motherland. And um, the same people then go back to Mexico. They live there 20 years. They you know they. They, you know, not the very same people, but a contingent of, of those people. Uh, but some of the leaders, in fact, of that 1872 riot, after a, a, uh, an election riot or a rebellion in 1892 in Chihuahua, uh, a handful of the leaders will then return back to New Mexico and claim U.S. citizenship after after having held political office in, in, in the country of Mexico on a, on a, on a few occasions. So yeah, identity in that sense, especially along the frontier, um, is is convenient. Mm-hmm. And and, and the re- you know what the re- the reason why they could do that, Marshall, was because the Mexican government had also not clarified. They clarified it on paper their their citizenship laws. Like you know, if you if you come to Mexico as a colonist, you are automatically a Mexican citizen. Although they had clarified it in law, they couldn't enforce it on paper. So. A number of these individuals that were in an election riot um, in 1892 in Chihuahua could then later go back to New Mexico and say, "We're still U.S. citizens, and here's my paperwork to prove it." Mm-hmm. And therefore, bringing the Mexican government and the U.S. government into the messy politics of uh, of um, what do you call it? I had to I had to turn extraterritoriality. No um... <laughs> extradition. Extradition. Yeah. Into the messy politics of extradition. Yeah. So. Yeah, the question is like it's 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 interesting, but when you see when you see it from you know these the way in which identity uh, is so malleable depending on the context, it yeah. makes sense, right? And I think we do it today as well. Is that I think identities are incredibly uh, uh, you know contingent and contextual depending on yeah. who uh, what the context is. Yeah, well, I mean this is especially true of Americans, where everybody's hyphenated. You know, I mean. Right. I, I know, like being in, in in Russia when I was first there, they'd say, you know, where are you from? And I'd say, well, I'm an American. I'm from Kansas. I mean, what do you want? Does it get any more American than that? They go, really? Where are you from? I'm, like, I'm from Can- I'm from America. And they're like, where are you from? I go, well, I mean, I guess my answers are from Germany, but I don't know anything about Germany. Go, oh, you're German. <laughs> I've always liked the. I've always liked. No, the, I'm not. Uh, the, yeah, what they call the uh, when I was in the Navy, Marshall. Uh, you know, you're 18 and you're being thrown, you know, with a bunch of other you know, 17 and 18 year olds and, you know, uh, from all over the country. And a couple of the, of the, of the, of the folks there from the Midwest, 
when you would ask them that question, they would say Heinz 57. <laughs> I'm, I'm Heinz 57. I'm, you know, everything. <laughs> really? Yeah. But now it's kind of hip and cool. I mean, when I was growing up, it wasn't cool to say that you were like, you know, German American or Jewish American or Mexican American or whatever. It was just like you were American. But now it's, now everybody's like, has has a hyphen and there's from someplace, but that's okay. I don't don't mind it, that at it, all. It probably has to do with it probably has to do with globalization. I yeah. suspect, right? Yeah, everybody's everybody wants to be. I don't know what it, I can't really figure it out. Um, I'm just American. So in any event, let me ask you. Uh, another, this is a, again. I wanted to go back to another question, and I, this is important for me and probably important for nobody else. But what sort of legal status did the United States give the people, the Mexicans, who had been left? Uh, on the American side of the border after the war, after 1848? Did, did they get to keep their property? Were they made citizens immediately? What What did the United States say to these people? Well, on paper, on paper, um, they were given the option. They were given two options. One is to stay and one is to return. And so for those that, they, and they had a year, that the, the citizens that were left in what is the Mexican session and debates, uh, estimates range, Marshall. So, you know, some people will, you know, will say 116,000. Yes, some estimates as high as 250,000 uh, Mexican citizens that were, that, that, that resided in those ceded territories. So in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, they had a year to decide on their citizenship if they, if they stayed and they did nothing. This is interesting if you, if you think about it in today's context with um, with uh, Mexican migrants, especially uh, the so-called undocumented, which is that they had an option. So after a year, if you didn't do anything, you automatically became a U.S. citizen, or you had a year to return to Mexico. And so um, obviously the vast majority opted to stay. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and at that moment, you could see exactly why, because one of the big issues during that period as can be seen by just looking at the law, is the question of um, these independent indigenous groups. That, again, I was going to ask just about them, because they were in a particularly interesting situation. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, that, that, that was the, I don't want to say the 800-pound gorilla in the room, but that was the, the main issue of who could provide protection and safety, right, to these borderlanders. Was it going to be the U.S. or was it going to be Mexico? And so the U.S. agreed that it would provide protection according to, I think it's Article 11. This is what Brian DeLay's uh, work um, uh, hinges on in his book on War of a Thousand Deserts. Um, and so it was obvious that neither the U.S. nor Mexico could control the area. And you can see that in uh, the, the subsequent treaty between the U.S. and Mexico in 1853 when the U.S. buys the Gadsden Purchase, but they remove Article 11. In other words, they remove from the treaty their obligation to patrol and to control that area because they cannot. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it will not be until about 1885 uh, or 1890s around there when the U.S. and Mexico come together to collectively quell um, the last of the Apache resistance with Geronimo. Mm-hmm. So, what they, what they gave these people um, was that option was legally. What's interesting, of course, is that if you look at it from the, the question of repatriation, uh, Marshall, is that there's this kind of ongoing discourse, and I was, I, was, I was reminded of it again the other day when I was reading a book 
uh, on a new book on the Mexican-American War. It's a great book, uh, but you know, in, in the book, there's this continued uh, discourse or trope that Mexico, that the U.S. wanted more of Mexico, but without the Mexicans. And what you find in the case of New Mexico is that that's not the case. In fact, the American government stops the Mexican Repatriate Commission from recruiting people to leave the New Mexico Territory. Why? Because you need bodies to then, you know, petition for statehood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To have a, a territorial delegate. So when you go, to go back to your question about some of the, the legalese uh, between the two nations, it's, in, it's interesting that, um, that, that the whole discourse about not wanting the territory, of wanting the territory but without the people, in practice, the American government effectively halted the repatriate commissioner from going into the New Mexican territory precisely because, as they said, it was not part of the treaty negotiations. It was not part of what we had agreed on. Mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons was was because of the indigenous population. It's like, you know, this is not the time for people to leave south when we have these other, you know, sorts of, we're being attacked on all sides right, right, by right. these groups. So, but yeah, they had, they had, they had the option of, I think I find that very, uh, very liberal compared to what's happening today, right? <laughs> which is that, <laughs> which is that, which is that neither, which is that neither, right? Neither. And, 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 well, I shouldn't say we're surprised, but it's sort of like almost a, a repeat because today, neither the U.S., nor Mexico, right? Yeah, can kind of uh, can come together and and come to some kind of an accord about what to do with right. you know uh, the millions of people that are in the country that are undocumented and the millions that have already returned to Mexico. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, legally, so, it's a disaster and it's contradictory because basically you put people in a situation where they just have to break the law, and a law that is written so you have to break the law is not a very good law. You know, it'd be like a speeding. It'd be like saying the speed limit is ten miles an hour. Well, nobody's going to do that. <laughs> so everybody has to break the law. So. Well, yeah, it's like, I mean, I was, I was reading a book, Marshall, by this uh, law, law professor, really interesting guy from our neck of the woods, uh, uh, Dan Canstrom from Boston uh, College, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and his book called Aftermath, where, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's akin, like you were saying, it's like, you know, you're, you're breaking the fugitive slave law, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't have laws that everybody, I mean, custom and the law, they have to be somehow aligned and it's just crazy to think they can't be. Yeah. In this case, these people are, these people are breaking the law because they're working. That's basically it. They've broken the law because they're working. And so it's not a very good law. Um, It's not really even a law because people aren't following it. So, and it's not being enforced. That's another thing. Yeah. It doesn't. It's, it doesn't exactly make the state look very good if it can't enforce its own bad laws. So, in any event, let me ask an, another question. I, I like what you said about the ambivalence that really imperializing powers like Mexico City and Washington, let's put it that way, have toward these yeah. borderlands. Because on the one hand, they probably want to settle them, but on the other hand, if settlers go beyond the the military reach of the place, then that can be trouble. And I'm reminded of. Uh, I don't know why I know this, but I think it was in the 18th century, the British got very upset uh, with, uh, quote-unquote, American colonists heading out west. And by west, right. I mean New York and Ohio and Indiana. The problem was is that they, once those settlers were out there, the British were sort of bound to defend them, and they couldn't. Right. So they tried to hold them back. You know, don't, don't go there, uh-huh. right? Uh, but then on the other hand, if there are enough of them, they want to keep them there so they can serve as garrison forces. Yes. You see this in the Russian case too, exactly the same thing. 
they, they forbid people to go beyond a certain um, beyond a certain boundary because they can't protect them out there. Uh, and, and if they do go out there, then there's going to be a popular outcry to protect them. And this is very easy to whip up the press about this stuff. And in the United States, it's happened all the time in the 19th century. Got to go out there and protect them. Um, yep. So it's, it's nice. To, I mean, you know, obviously, the Mexicans ran up against the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we're, we're actually, we've taken up a lot of your time and I don't want to, <laughs> I have a lot more questions, but I, I want to kind of, um, it's fascinating research and it brings to our attention something that we, uh, at least I, I won't speak for everybody, just really didn't know any about what makes a lot of sense. And I, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, well, how does all this bear on what's going on today on the uh, Mexican-American Order. How does it inform what we should probably think about this this space? You open the book with Vincente Fox uh, asking uh, Mexicans to come home, which I thought was kind of poignant. I didn't know that he ever said anything like that. Uh, so, could oh, yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, because you know, I mean, there's those are two points there, but I think the one that you sort of point out with Fox for me is is um, is more interesting in that sense, in that in that. Um, it's not only it, it hasn't only been Fox, as I point out. You've had this discourse of, um, of of returning home, returning to the homeland. You've had it, as I point out, with these with these programs since at least after the Mexican American yeah. War, and you continue to have these politicians. Um, you, you we haven't heard it yet from uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who who is quite a very savvy politician, and I believe him and President Obama are going to be meeting uh, soon. Uh, probably won't be discussing uh, immigration reform, but almost every president uh, for the last century has had some kind of a discourse of an, of an idea of returning to Mexico, and in fact, there's already been research done about how repatriates fared um, of, uh, when they returned after the Great Depression, right, the so-called million uh, Mexican and Mexican-Americans that were deported in the 1930s after the Great Depression. There's been studies done on that where, you know, Mexico's colonization efforts uh, were a miserable failure. Um, There's been some research on the people that returned after 1954 under Operation Wetback. Again, not to very effective uh, um, resettlement or repatriation programs. Those that are returning since 9-11, especially um, the, one, the, the first victims of the workplace raids in 2003 under President Bush, um, many of these individuals have returned uh, more and more impoverished than when they left. So, you know, what the book tries to sort of broach is, is exactly like, look, we keep on, you know, um, this particular population continues to hear this very nationalistic and glorious sort of rhetoric about, about how these people are supposedly you know, more superior and more modern, and they should return back to the homeland. But in effect, what I found is that the Mexican government, uh, irrespective of political party, whether it's the PRD, uh, excuse me, whether it's the PRI or the PAN, Mexican governments have shown more interest in remittances than in the welfare of those people. According to uh, Mexican estimates, by the way, these are not mine. These are estimates from Mexican newspapers. The the um, the remittances, which in some years has easily gone over twenty billion dollars and has become the second and third largest source of uh, revenue for 
uh, for these populations, uh, it, it has reduced the population. I mean, it has reduced the poverty level by 15%. And yet the Mexican government allocates a, a miserable, miserable budget to programs or an infrastructure that will attend to these people that are returning right now that are being repatriated. So in that sense, that's why I open up with, with Vicente Fox, which is that there's a, it's, it's a, this is where rhetoric meets reality, yeah. Marshall, right? It's like, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of discourse, a lot of rhetoric, but if we look at it and then we examine these, <clears throat> this rhetoric with actual empirical data, I mean, even historically, let's look at, let's look at the Mexican government programs themselves that they themselves implemented. And again, as I say in the book, I mean, the government deserves credit for implementing the laws, but the fact is, is that I think in terms of a budget and in terms of, a, of, a, of trying to effectively do something about it, um, uh, you can just look at the budgets to see how much money is, yeah. is allocated towards these programs yeah. to see exactly where their heart is at. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm glad you mentioned the remittances because I was going to mention them next. And just so people know, what we're talking about here is money flowing from Mexican immigrants to the United States back into Mexico. And there is an extraordinary amount of it. And I often think, you know, you'll hear on the BBC or something about how successful the German economy is because it's largely built on exports. And I always think of Mexico because it is too. They export people and then they send money back. <laughs> they send huge yeah, amounts India, of money the, back. The Philippines, you named it. Yeah, you know, Philippines, it's, just, uh, yeah. it's global. It's even more global now more right. than ever. Yeah, no, it's remarkably successful exports. Um, but I, I, I see just what you mean, and I and I was going to ask just about that: is that that, that, the, that, that Mexico has become um, dependent upon these remittances in a, in, a, in a way, and 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 that obviously politicians have to think about that when talking about repatriation. Yeah. They have. I mean, and, um, you know, I think the, um, with the economy, the way, the way that it's, um, the way that it's played out, especially since, since 2008, you know, it's become even more so. I think, um, the, the problem with, um, that's happening now, however, is that, you know, migration to the U.S. from Mexico has come to a statistical zero. Um, there have been some research by the Pew uh, Research Center that's suggesting that um, that there might be that 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 that, uh, that, that statistical zero may be increasing, but um, even with the economy the way it is, uh, Mexico is very very much. And I would I wouldn't say that the, the the country, but more the people, right, are more dependent on these on these remittances, on these monies that are being sent back um, by people in the U.S. So. Yeah, I mean, I've yeah, yes, it's um, and you know you can for I don't know how to put this. I used to live in Washington D.C., and if you mm-hmm. went in front of any, um, uh, let's say you know Home Depot or home improvement store, you could see it if you know what mm-hmm. I mean, because there were crowds oh, yeah. of Mexican guys who were just waiting to be hired, um, and and they were sending that money back, and they're always guys, they're always alone, and they're always nice guys, <laughs> but they're sending yeah. the money back. Um, so it, was that? yeah. It's- yeah, and there. I mean, you don't see it as much anymore. I think. Mark. Yeah, I don't. You really don't. I was going to say that you really don't. And I was interested in what you said, but you don't see it as often anymore. You don't. What I think. What I think is really. Um, but even with that, I think that I think that not seeing those sites anymore. You know, especially for somebody like you know, uh, well, I won't. I will make. I won't. I won't uh, uh, crack a joke, but um, you see it a lot less, and I think it has to do with. Um, this particular uh, recent, what I call the, the, the most recent round 
of deportations, you know, yeah. and so that's effectively what I'm actually um, writing my next book on. But I think that itself, right, the, the absence of those people uh, outside, just you know, looking to to work, to labor, the kind of um, the yeah, I mean, that kind of an environment, the the even the vibrant sort of nature of some small towns that had these very large immigrant communities like Postville, Iowa, mm-hmm. like New Bedford, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. like Greeley, Colorado, that, you know, right. uh, like Cactus, Texas, for instance, which, you know, as some people have said is a ghost town after the, um, the, uh, the D8 uh, ICE went in there and uh, effectively rounded up uh, so-called undocumented uh, folks. And, you know, I was, I was reminded of, of it because of, you know, earlier, you, uh, I mentioned the book by Dan Canstrom, where I hadn't really thought about it until he kind of contextualized it in, in terms of the law. But he actually goes even further than, than, than I would even suggest by saying that, that what we're seeing today is something that is a national embarrassment that is akin to the Japanese removals and the internments. It's akin to, you know... Um, the kinds of, uh, uh, it's, it's akin to the sort of the blemishes upon American history that we've seen in the past. And I think today we are witnessing one of those uh, incredible uh, blemishes on American history, especially this whole kind of discourse about the U.S. as a nation of immigrants, right? And you hear right. President Obama talking about, yes, we are a nation of immigrants, but we're a nation of laws. And I'm like, well, that law happens to be selectively applied and changed over time, right, as a historian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and I think we are, in that sense, witnessing one of these periods because, you know, this whole mythology about the U.S. as a nation of immigrants, I think, is, um, is one of those mythologies, and you can see it. You can see how, how it is a mythology by looking at, for instance, just the process and the history of why these particular populations have been targeted for over a century mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So. It's funny you mentioned Postville, Iowa. I used to teach at the University of Iowa, and I spent a lot of time. I'm from the Midwest originally, as I said. And, um, and I was in Iowa in 19... I left in 1985, 1984. I was an undergraduate yeah. there. And then I came back in, uh, what was this, 2007. And the Iowa that I came to teach at the University of Iowa, and the Iowa I came back to was really quite different uh, in the sense that every moderately sized, not really little, but moderately sized town like Postville had a pretty good Hispanic population, really a Mexican population. Um, yeah. And, and I got to say, from the point of view of the Iowans that I talked to and being from the Midwest myself, I mean, these people were happy that they were there because the mm. sons and daughters of Iowa are moving away to the coasts. And so these people are willing yeah. to come there and work in the plants and, and, and to farm and to do all the other stuff. And the, the Mexicans that I knew there were very happy to be there. I mean, it's a very nice place, you know. Um, so, it, you know, in that sense, I, I think that uh, if the heartland speaks for America, maybe um, <laughs> maybe that attitude is changing. Because, you know, I mean, these are, and again, I don't want to editorialize or anything like that, but these are church-going people, you know, and they're like... No, they, I, think, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are like the kind of people you want. <laughs> Hard-working, yeah, church-going types. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are willing to live through an Iowa winter and quite happy about it. <laughs> So, about it. Yeah. So, uh, boy, do I have winter here. Um, so, uh, thank you very much for writing the book, and thank you for your time, Jose. Hey, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about it, Marshall. It was nice to meet you. Yeah, it was really and fun. Good to have good to have a discussion, and again, thanks again for 
taking time to chat a bit. Sure, absolutely. So today we've been talking with uh, Jose Angel Hernandez about his book, Mexican-American Colonization During the 19th Century, A History of the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands. And let me say to everybody listening, thank you very much for listening, and that I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope everybody has a great week.